My name is Sean Thomas, and I'm the author of Be More Today, a 40-day guide to a better version of you. As doctor of physical therapy, I've seen thousands of people do great things. They came to me with ailments, physical ailments, pain, issues, and they got through them, all because they decided in their mind they were going to do it. So I wrote a book about it. Your thoughts can make you great, or they can make you crumble. Those thoughts actually control everything in your life. I have three things I want you to do. Starts. Things I want you to start doing in your life that you said you wanted to do at some point in time. You said them. Stops. Things I want you to stop doing in your life, which I know you also want to stop. And three goals for your lives. And I take you through a 40-day guide to make sure you take those thoughts for those three things into reality. Now, I put some workouts in there too. Workouts to keep you always on the move because you got to keep moving. you got to stay focused. So, 40 days. Thoughts, workouts, you. And all I want you to do is trust the process and just be persistent. Visit BeMoreTodayBook.com. That's right, BeMoreTodayBook.com. And I guarantee you, if you just trust the process and be persistent, you too can be the best version of you. What's going on, folks? It's your boy again, Dr. Sean Thomas here, episode 78 of the Be More Today show. We are back, we are back, we are back in the building. And folks, it's great to be here. Again, we are in the fall season, moving forward. It's marathon season for me, but the Be More Today show continues to push forward. Again, ordinary people doing extraordinary things, and we are pushing information everywhere. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, Twitter. Our Strava page is hot right now. So if you are a runner, a biker, a walker, join our Strava group on Strava. You can be a part of the Be More Today family. We're doing things every single day out there, just inspiring you to be more, to be better, to be great. Um, and again, we're on YouTube and on all major podcast platforms. We are now heard in 46 countries, 46 countries. So thank you so much for your love and support. It's been, again, a labor of love, but it's been great connecting with so many people and sharing how athletics and fitness and, and health is such an integral part of our lives. Um, my quote for today is very simple as always. And it says, it's often the small things that no one sees that bring the big results everyone wants. Uh, as I have told you guys before, I'm in the, the final three weeks of marathon training. Um, this is my last marathon. This is going to be number five for me. And, you know, NYC is, is a great one to end it off with. It's an exciting place, clearly coming out of COVID-19 and being able to be around so many people again is going to be really, really exciting. But no one really thinks about or looks at um, the training that comes with this thing. And we've been training with this thing for weeks now, months now, really. And, you know, it's been a process and putting in the foundation, the groundwork. And again, I told you guys uh, a couple weeks ago, I have I was not doing anything during during quarantine. I was doing a couple of things virtually, but really coming back into it and, and recognizing that, you know, if you, if you don't use it, you do lose it. And I lost a lot of muscle mass and, and training when I wasn't running for a while, but putting back the foundation, laying on the groundwork, following the programs, trusting the process. I'm almost right back to where I was at the end of 2019. So I'm excited for NYC. I'm trying to go sub four again for the last time. And um, it's really about those small things that no one sees that bring about great results. Not, not just about training for the marathon, you know, waking up at four in the morning and doing interval workouts and running across the bridge and running 20 miles on, on a Sunday morning at four in the morning. Those things no one sees, right? Because it does bring about big change in, in, in the end. 
But it's those things that you put the work in that shows bigger progress in life. So whether you're running the marathon or whether you're um, doing stuff for your thesis for school or at your job, putting in that work, putting in that grind, those little things will show big results in the end. So just keep pushing out there, folks. Keep doing the small things because I guarantee you those will bring big results to you in the end. And my guest for today is someone who continues uh, to help people figure out the small things they can change and do in their lives to be better on the field, not just the field uh, athletically, but the field of life. And her name is Dr. Jamie Shapiro. Now, she is an associate professor and the co-director of the Master's in Sport and Performance Psychology Program in the Graduate School of Professional Psychology at the University of Denver. She earned a PhD in Sport and Exercise Psychology from West University University, West Virginia University, and an MA in Community Counseling from WVU, and an MS in Athletic Counseling from Springfield College. She earned a BS in Psychology from the illustrious Brown University, Bruno, you know, where she was on the gymnastics team for four years. Dr. Shapiro is a certified mental performance consultant listed on the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee's Sports Psychology and Mental Training Registry and a national certified counselor by the National Board of Certified Counselors. She is a professional member of the USA Gymnastics from 03 to 2013. And Dr. Shapiro is a consultant for Sport and Performance Excellence Consultants based in Denver, Colorado. She has consulted with youth, collegiate, elite, and Paralympic athletes for a variety of sports, including gymnastics, skiing, snowboarding, soccer, lacrosse, wrestling, volleyball, swimming, and of course, track and field. She has also coached gymnasts at the recreational club and collegiate uh, levels. In addition, Dr. Shapiro has done exercise psychology consulting to help adults with motivation and adherence to exercise programs. Dr. Shapiro's specific interests include psychology of sport injury, learning the skills through sport, psychological skill training, mental training for athletes who have disabilities, psychology for performing arts, exercise psychology, and ethics and training in sport and performance psychology. A former competitive gymnast, as I was able to observe when I was there with her, Dr. Shapiro still likes to do handstands in cool places all over the world. She's originally from Jersey, and now that she lives in Colorado, she's attempting to improve her skiing abilities. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, pets included, please welcome to the stage my friend, Dr. Jamie Shapiro. Dr. Shapiro. How are you? Dr. What's going Thomas, on? Good to see you. It's so nice to reconnect. I know I follow you on all the social and see the great things that you're doing. So thanks for inspiring me and others. And thanks so much for having me on your podcast. No problem. I appreciate you coming by. I appreciate you taking the time out. I know, you know, time is of the essence always. And people are very, very busy. But you made time for me and I appreciate that so much. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you. Listen, we... um. Went to Brown University around the same time. Clearly, uh, we watch each other compete in various ways. We have uh, similar friends in various circles. Uh, we both were psychology majors at the time as well. Um, and you took psychology clearly to the next level and went through all the schooling, right, for it. So I had to have you on because I, I, I watched you and I follow you on social media as well and saw a number of the things you've been doing um, in Colorado. And I thought it was just awesome that you're really combining what you learned and studied in terms of your athletic career in line with what you studied for school. And, you know, I, I never asked you at the time, I would ask you right now, um, gymnastics is a, is a very 
uh, uh, specific and skilled sport. And then a lot of people, you know, take gymnastic classes. My daughter even did gymnastics over this, this summer at Chelsea Piers down here in New York City. Nice. Uh, some people don't really, you know, take it to the next level. How did you get involved in gymnastics in the first place? Well, probably similar to what you did with your daughter. My parents did with me and they just wanted me to do something. Um, when I was four years old, my mom put me in gymnastics. She says because she never learned to do a cartwheel. She wanted me to learn to do a cartwheel. And that was pretty much it. And then I stuck with it for the next 18 years, all the way through Brown till, until I was 22 years old. Um, part of it was it was probably the only sport I was good at. <laughs> I tried a bunch of others and never good at the ball sport. So now that I'm in sports psychology, I've analyzed that a little bit. There's something called competence motivation theory, meaning we want to do the things we're good at. And so I guess I was good at it. I was getting some positive reinforcement. I also was having fun with it. But I started competing when I was seven, which looking back seems really young. Uh, but I did club gymnastics through high school. And then one of my goals was always to do gymnastics in college. And so I was thrilled to be recruited at Brown and get on the gymnastics team there. And I had a, a wonderful experience there and I'm still very close with many of my teammates as well as the current coach there. So got into it from parents and then, you know, kept doing good things, I guess, and, and wanted to stick with it. That's great. Um, you know, I, I was, again, I was able to come to a number of meets and even help one of your fellow gymnast choreographed one of her floor routines back in the day. So I, I had a very nice connection with the gymnastics team. Um, but, you know, as, as a former athlete as well, you know, I, I always talk to athletes in this context about how integral athletics has been in my life when it came to not just my um, athletic career and, and my personal life, but also my academic life and professional careers. What are some of the aspects for you um, now that you've actually studied this thing on, on multiple levels, um, that's what uh, athletics that, that help you to pave your way through your academia, um, through your professional career and even personal stuff. As I think you mentioned already, I learned a lot of life skills through gymnastics and it helped me be more achievement oriented and goal oriented for sure. Um, more disciplined and focused. And I think those things translated into school. I was also very goal-oriented and achievement-oriented in school. And the way that I got into sports psychology is I had a coach who was really psychologically minded. He would sit us down for hours at a time and talk to us about goal setting or dealing with fear, um, you know, kind of managing that fear in gymnastics, which is huge. And I always found those talks, although sometimes too long, very interesting. And I always envisioned myself involved in a career with active people. I actually thought about being a physical therapist for a while. That was one of my career choices, maybe sports medicine. And then I went to a lot of physical therapy and decided that wasn't exactly what I had in mind. Um, but someone mentioned sports psychology and I had taken a psychology in high school psychology class in high school. I found it really fascinating. And then they said sports psychology. And I was like, wait, that exists. What is that? And um, just kept doing more and more research into the field. So at Brown, there wasn't a sports psychology class, but I had an advisor there who was really open to letting me do an independent study with some of my classmates and one of my teammates, Sarah Kyle Chernoff. And we just read sports psychology textbooks and 
you know, talked about sports psych. And as an athlete, I really related to a lot of the concepts that I was reading about and just thought it sounded so cool. So I talked to professionals in the field, did some research whenever I could of what would a career in sports psychology look like and realized I had to go to graduate school. So yes, I started with a master's and then um, did a doctorate that actually exists in sports psychology. And most people in the field were saying, you know, it's really hard to find a full-time job in sports psychology. And, and that's still true. Um, and so one of the, the career paths that seemed really doable for me was to become a professor and that's the full-time job and then doing some private practice on the side. And so that's what I thought I would do. And um, I'm one of the few people who actually ended up doing what I thought I would do, which is awesome. I mean, there's some aspects of my career that I didn't envision, like working with athletes with disabilities is the majority of my practice. And I never imagined that was something I would do. And it's extremely fulfilling and rewarding and has changed my whole career in terms of practice and scholarship. But yeah, I think just relating to the field of sports psychology personally made me want to study it. And I was actually able to do a senior thesis at Brown, again, just supported by the professors there in psychology of injury, which I'm sure you, you really see in your practice as a physical therapist is it's not just the physical recovery, but there's a large aspect that's mental in the recovery. And I tore my ACL my freshman year in college. I don't know if you remember that. It was the practice before my first college meet as a freshman. And I was out the whole season. And that experience led me to this professional career of studying psychology of injury. Um, all my research in graduate school is in psychology of injury. So it's just funny how these experiences that at the time that was really devastating, but it influenced my professional career. So that's interesting to reflect on and look back on. Yeah. And then I, I also coach. So I saw the psychological aspect of gymnastics and, um, you know, other sports that way. And the more I went to graduate school and studied it and got to practice the consulting aspect of sports psych, the more I wanted to do it. So I went straight through school, master's PhD, and then ended up in Denver as a professor. Um, I still feel like a lifelong student and I just love the academic environment and training students in this field who are also really passionate about it and then getting to work with athletes on the side and, and help them with their mental performance. Yeah, that's incredible. I, I don't remember you injuring yourself freshman year, um, but it is interesting, you know, as someone who also had an injury, my senior year in high school, my senior year in at Brown, um, that that's what kind of drove me to do physical therapy. And, you know, I, I do think that it is those experiences that we go through when you can actually see the progress that you have to go through those things that can lead us to different directions in terms of our professional career. Um, and yes, I do see a lot of that when it comes to my patients. Um, there, We don't do, do a lot of psych when it comes to grad school stuff, but there is a, a psychological component that comes to, you know, goal setting and getting over fears and being able to trust that knee again after a surgery, those kind of things. We do deal with that. And actually in my book, I talked a little bit about that for myself, but clearly you go into deeper analysis of what those those things are and how to really gauge those things. So just for listeners, I'm, I'm curious if you can just give us a, a small description of what sports psychology is, is I guess, our typical day for you, what that looks like, and what are some of the things that you've helped people to 
uh, get back to doing as, as a sports psychologist? Yeah, so sports psychology, the science of it is really the study of people's behavior in sports settings and often exercise psychology and performance psychology is, is lumped together. So looking at people's behavior and performance in those settings. But what we're really looking at more specifically are what are some psychological or mental factors that are affecting performance in those settings? And then also how does participation in sport exercise or performance affect someone psychologically? So you can probably imagine like when I exercise, I know for myself, it really helps me relieve stress, be more focused, um, improve my mood. And same with sport. We've talked about how that has benefited us psychologically, both of us. So looking at how um, the participation affects psychological factors. And then the application of all of that knowledge is trying to help people perform in the upper, upper range of their capabilities on a more consistent basis. But as a secondary goal, it's not just about the performance and the outcomes, but also the process and hoping that people can enjoy the process a bit um, and also enhance their, their well-being through the process. And you, you've mentioned several times about it's not just about sport, but also life. And that's one of my philosophies and a focus in my practice, too, is I want the person to be a, a good human and just an athlete. And I treat them the whole person. So it's not just about you're a performer and an athlete and you need to win. It's, you know, let's also enhance well-being while we can and learn, you know, what we're learning through this mental performance consulting, these mental skills to help improve performance are very applicable to other areas of life, like school or work, uh, relationships, that type of stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny you mentioned be a good human. I talked about that a couple of weeks ago. There's a shirt that says be a good human that people are wearing nowadays. And I love it because it really is so basic but so grandiose in the sense that yeah just be a good human just be a good person and i i i honestly do believe that people who are involved in sports um or had some kind of athletic anything growing up it teaches you so many things that you can apply to life um you know a lot of people especially today have a hard time failing they have a hard time losing and you know if you're an athlete like you know you and i have been you know, there are days when you win and days when you lose and you learn how to deal with that stuff at a very young age. So when it comes to life and, you know, whether you're applying for a job or something else goes wrong or whatever else, you're prepared for that already because you already know how that feels on the field or on or in the in the gym, you know. Um, and I think a lot of people, when they don't have a chance to experience that, have a hard time dealing with life's real realities when these things happen. And I even look at my daughter sometimes, you know, she's only six and she's only six, but we've only gotten her involved in a couple of different things, but she has a really hard time with losing. And I, I'm hoping that as I get her more involved in, you know, soccer and other sports that she'll be able to recognize that, you know, this is something that happens and you have to be able to negotiate how you feel about it and move forward to the next thing or the next game or whatever else to be ready for, you know, the next challenge. But I definitely agree. There's definitely a psychology to it. And I'm glad that you're able to see that on a grandiose or a bigger scale to help people with not just their performance on the field, but their performance in life. Yeah. And I, you know, I've certainly worked with athletes and a bunch just came back from the Tokyo Paralympic Games and some were really pleased with their performance and others weren't. And we, we process that just like what you said, sometimes 
you're on top and you win and other times you don't. And what I say to them is if you learn something and you grew as a person through this experience, then that's a win in my book. You know, I know a lot of coaches and other staff, they're very outcome oriented. And I try to be this, one of the support staff members who is not outcome oriented. And I don't care if you got medals or not. I mean, I care because my athletes care, but I am going to be there regardless to support them. And my main objective with them is what, what did you learn through this and how did you grow? And to me, that's a win. And so I hope your daughter can get there someday. Yeah, no, I hope so too. Um, listen, I want to talk a little bit more about your, your practice. I know you say you work with a number of populations, uh, Paralympic uh, population, clearly you mentioned that, and some youth and collegiate, some elite athletes. Um, what are some of the skills that you share um, with, with your participants or these populations when you're training them, when you're going through um, what they can tweak either before a competition or during competition or even after? Um, and how do you think we as people who may not be as elite as they are or may be, but can apply those same skills to not just our performance when it comes to you know marathons or whatever else, but also to life skills and whatever else that it can also be applied to. Sure, I'll start with the process of what it looks like to do what we call again mental performance consulting with athletes. And the first step for me is always building rapport, building that relationship, because no matter what intervention I teach, if they don't trust me, if we don't have that rapport, it's probably not going to be effective. Uh, I also start with an assessment of what are what are their needs, what are their goals in terms of the mental performance that they want to achieve. So it's not cookie cutter. It, it looks different with every single athlete, but there are some basic mental skills that I'm always keeping in mind to review or, or go over with the athletes based on their needs. And just to list a few of them, um, one is certainly goal setting. We mentioned that before, and that's something everyone can do. Like you said, a recreational athlete, certainly when you're training for a marathon, I'm sure you've had many goals, but it's not just about setting a goal, it's setting effective goals. And a lot of people will set that outcome goal. Uh, I noticed you set a time goal, right? To be under four hours. So we call that a performance goal that that's, you know, maybe based on some other times that you've had before and you want to achieve that. And I like to also help athletes focus on what we call process goals is how are you going to get there? So if your goal is to run the marathon in under four hours, what do you need to do to get that time. And we, we break it down to really small goals that are going to help reach that performance goal or the outcome goal. So goal setting is a big part of what we do. Also motivation, you know, certainly with the pandemic, these Paralympic athletes had an extra year before the games and um, through quarantine and isolation, just figuring out how to train when they didn't have access and having that motivation to go an extra year was a huge thing that we talked about. Um, energy management is something I focus a lot with people on. So not, you know, we only have a certain amount of energy, physical energy and mental energy. So I like to ask people, is your mental energy being spent productively? And it doesn't have to be positive. Is it just helpful or useful to you? And if you feel like it's not, is there a way to shift to something that's more productive for you? Um, arousal regulation. So that's like, how relaxed are you? How hyped up are you? And everyone needs to be at a different level. So for you running a marathon, 
I would have you like rate on a scale of one to 10. Where do you want to be in terms of your arousal level or your energy level? And then how do you get there? So how do you hype yourself up or how do you calm yourself down if needed? Do you need some deep breathing or relaxation or imagery? Those are some common skills that we work on. Um, Self-talk is something I really focus on with people. So that's just like, what are your thoughts and how are they affecting your emotions and your performance? So really helping people pay attention to their thinking and how it's affecting their performance. A focus and refocus strategies or cues are something I help athletes with a lot. Um, Creating routines. So maybe you have a pre-competition routine, but also during competition what do you want your routines to be? And what do you want your cues to be? And then after competition, um, routines also, but more of reflection. And there's a term now called the reflective performer and helping people, again, this is to help them learn through their performance, regardless of the outcome. So I often ask them two questions, maybe three, but what went well? What do you want to improve next time? And what did you learn? And those three questions, and that really helps somebody reflect and hopefully just be a more, I don't know, like a student of themselves and and learn more that they can apply next time. So those are a lot of individual mental skills I might work on with athletes. And I think they're very applicable, like you said, for anyone in life and in many performance domains. Um, Just a couple other things I work on with clients or teams or the group dynamics aspect of it. So there's team sports, but even an individual sport, you know, you had teammates in college, even though track and field was an individual sport and there was relays and stuff, but just that team building, team cohesion is something I do with teams, um, clarifying team goals, roles and norms of the team, mission statements, you know, vision statements, that kind of stuff as well. Uh, leadership training. So if there are captains, I've done some captain training, um, but also coaching education And then finally, that injury recovery piece, that psych of injury. And it's mostly applying all those mental skills I already talked about to injury recovery. So with that imagery piece, that's that, you know, a lot of people call it visualization. I call it imagery because I really want athletes to incorporate all of their senses, especially the kinesthetic sense, which is the sense of body movement. So when you're injured and you can't physically do what you used to do, you can still do that mental practice or that imagery. And that keeps the neurons firing to your body the way they would as if you're physically doing it just at a lower threshold, but it helps keep those connections intact so that hopefully when you're returning to sport or exercise or whatever performance area that, you know, it's a little bit easier because you've done that mental practice. So I know that was a lot, um, Again, I I think what I do with elite athletes can be very applicable with youth athletes. I actually think, you know, youth athletes really need this stuff. Maybe not more than elite athletes, but sometimes athletes don't get these services until they're elite athletes, but they get to the elite level because they have these skills. And so if we could teach it at the youth level and teach them as life skills that they can apply to other areas, I think that's so really important area. And it's what at Den- at University of Denver, we have our students mostly work with those youth populations, which I think is really great because I think it's needed. That's fantastic, Jamie. You know, I, I, I think about all the coaches I've had in my life um, and didn't really start doing sports probably until like seventh grade or so, sixth grade, seventh grade. But all the ones I've had in my life had some kind of aspect of what you talked about, right? Trying to 
gear us towards these things, but no one was actually in, uh, in a official, um, you know, uh, they didn't have all the knowledge about these things all in one person. Everyone kind of gave me something as I learned from middle school to high school to college, et cetera. Um, and I, I do think that your point is accurate to say that if we had given or if we did give these trainings, these little tidbits of knowledge to younger people, you know, at an earlier age before they became elite athletes. Yes, I we the ones who become those athletes have that instilled in them to some extent, right? Or their talent gets them to that level where they can benefit from someone like you to to do those kind of things. But a lot of people, and I think of all the documentaries I watch on TV nowadays where there are athletes who just literally lose it for many reasons, whether it's financial or stress related or what have you. Um, and then they never actually reach it to that level, right? They never make it to that level because they just were, were, were either distracted by so many other things or the psyche just wasn't right at the time, or the pressure was too high or whatever, or the injury was too much that never actually came back from it, you know? Um, what are some of the, the barriers to sharing these services? I mean, University of Denver is doing a great job, clearly, but what are some of the barriers that you've seen in terms of um, not just the, the, the U.S. population, but maybe even globally, if you know, why these skills, these trainings, these these knowledge-based um, information sessions are not shared or can't be shared with 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 more people? Well, I think the financial aspect is certainly one piece of it that sport organizations, especially youth sport organizations, may not have funding to be able to bring somebody in. I do think with technology now and like you know access to webinars and podcasts that there's more access, but in terms of bringing a consultant in that, you know, it's not a free service. And, and so athletic organizations have their priorities of what they want to spend money on. And even though, of course, in my field, from my biased perspective, I think this is an essential service. It is really viewed as more of a luxury service in some, in some areas. And that's why you know, being able to be in a graduate program where we have 60 students, uh, they're graduate students, and they go out in the field and work, like I said, mostly with youth sport, they are cheaper. Um, sometimes they're free, but we, we like to have them at least charge something to value the service. But it is providing access to services to populations that may otherwise not have access. But there aren't that many graduate programs in sports psych. So can't have that that everywhere. And now I think with the tele consulting and Zoom and you know, I think a sport organization can think about, okay, can I hire someone even remotely to be able to do this if this is something important to me? But I also think coaches are probably the best vehicle to get this stuff out to people as well as athletic trainers and physical therapists because you're with the athletes more often than me as a consultant. So if I can train coaches on these mental, like how to incorporate these mental skills into their practices, then that's going to have more reach and more impact than me coming in, you know, once a week or once a month or however often that I'm, that I'm brought in. So the training, the trainer model, I think could be really effective. Um, when you talk about barriers, I also think there's still a stigma whenever someone hears the word psychology. So there's some resistance of like, something has to be wrong in order for me to bring in a psychology professional. And in, especially the, that's why we're using the term mental performance so that it's like, you know, you have your strength coach, you have your regular coach, you have a physical therapist or um, athletic trainer. 
And that a mental performance consultant or sports psychologist is just another piece of that performance team that it's not something has to be wrong for me to go to a sport performance psychologist, but we're also there to support someone if stuff goes wrong, which it does. But I think that stigma is still a barrier for people. And, um, you know, certainly mental health in sport has gotten a lot of attention over the past number of months. And so that's wonderful to have some really high profile athletes speaking out saying um, how mental health has affected them and hopefully bringing more attention to resources that are out there for athletes who are struggling with mental health. Yeah. I mean, speaking on that in particular, I mean, this, this summer was a very busy summer with mental health being at the forefront of so many big stories, right? We talk about Shakari Richardson. We talk about Naomi Osaka, um, Simone Biles, clearly Michael Phelps in the past. All these athletes have come out in various ways talking about their issues or their struggles when it comes to mental health and how media and everything else can kind of get in the way of their ability to perform. Um, and I think, you know, it's not a new thing, clearly, but athletes have taken a bigger stance to say, look, I'm not going to perform. I'm not going to come out. I'm not going to do this thing to say because I don't feel like I'm mentally there. Um, we've also seen it in the past with people like Tiger Woods and, and, you know, those people who had other issues that, again, they didn't really talk about, but we saw manifest in other ways. Um, so, you know, when it comes to the stuff that you've learned uh, uh, in the classroom setting, what you apply to your practice, what advice do you share with these athletes who are competing on this elite level? Uh, they're in the limelight. You know, there's so much pressure that's being put on them and the stress is high, but there's also a expectation that they can handle it an expectation that they should be able to deal with whatever uh, uh, emotions, anxiety that they're dealing with and still perform on a regular basis. What, what, what are the same traits that you, or the same tips that you share with the youth athlete, the same one you share with the elite athlete, or does it change a little bit based on the intensity of the, of the sport? So there are definitely different stressors as you climb the ladder in sport at the elite level. So like I said, elite athletes often have a lot of these mental skills but those external factors or pressures change. And at the elite level are quite intense as we observed um, with the Olympics and, and other events this summer, but also before that, um, you know, I work a lot with athletes on, on coping strategies and trying to help them prepare for some of the stuff that might come up and, you know, do a lot of like, if then, so let's come up with scenarios and actually practice working through them. Of course, you can't predict every single scenario that's going to happen. And so having these coping skills that, you know, okay, wait, I know I'm really stressed out. Something's wrong. What are my tools that I have? Um, so we talk about different coping strategies, different categories. So there's problem-focused coping, which deals with the problem directly, like more problem-solving stuff. And then there's emotion-focused coping, which helps you deal with how you're feeling. So that might even just be, you know, like meditation or getting a good workout or watching Netflix, you know, kind of whatever helps you feel better. And then social support is something you really talk about. Like who are the people you can go to when you're feeling stressed? Social support is found to be such a buffer for stress. So preventing stress, but also a technique to cope with stress. And a, a big thing I would just say is people, I, I hope they get more comfortable reaching out to resources because they're out there. And the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee have recently 
really increased and revamped their their mental health um, department. So they started all these new positions. A lot of them are my friends and colleagues and uh, former students that are in those positions, which is great. But um, you know, there was there were always sports psychologists at the USOPC, and now they added you know not just that mental performance piece, but we need to take care again of the mental health. And so they've added a lot of positions there. The NFL has also required that there's a licensed mental health position with every team and colleges are increasingly hiring these positions. So hopefully resources are increasing, but athletes, I would just encourage them to feel comfortable speaking up. And if someone doesn't listen, go to somebody else. And, and hopefully eventually they'll get connected to uh, hopefully a trained and credible resource, you know, someone who's licensed in the mental health field, if, if that's the issue. And, and that they utilize the resources, not just when they need it, but sometimes before they need it in, in that preventative measure as well. So I'm, I'm hoping that all this attention in the media um, helps organizations realize that they need to provide resources for their athletes, but that athletes also get more comfortable speaking up and seeking out those resources and u- using them. Yeah, I agree. And, and I do think that like you said, as, as time goes on and we get used to people using their resources and hopefully get used to people recognizing that, look, I need a, a mental health day. I need a, a day where I'm not, you're not going to see me on the court or on the, uh, you know, on the track this day. I just, I just can't do it. Um, Cause you know, I'm looking at the responses of the people when these things happen and they're just so angry. If people get upset, I paid money to see, you know, and, and there's no sense of the humanity. There's no sense of the, the, the sheer reality that, look, this person is not feeling good that day. You and all of us have days we don't want to go to work. We don't want to, you know, perform at whatever level that we're doing. And we take sick days. We take personal days. And these athletes and these people are not even given any room to do that. And, and the argument is always the same. Well, they pay lots of money, so they should be able to do that. And that's not really our problem. But, you know, in reality they just like you and I are people and mm-hmm. you know, there, there's no ifs and buts about that. And there should be some kind of room or grace or leeway for us to recognize that, you know, when the limelight's on them every single day and there's no room for them to have any kind of a break, they, they can take a personal day and, and take a mental health day and, and use that time to, like you said, apply the coping skills that they're learning, hopefully with some kind of a coach to be able to come back and perform better for the, the next round. So yeah. I, I just hope people have, some empathy and, and compassion and that they could extend that to others. But you're right. Often we view celebrities and athletes as superhuman. And I think um, Simone Biles, who, you know, I don't know personally and haven't spoken to her and I don't know what really went on, of course, in Tokyo, but she kept saying like, I'm a person, I'm a human and this type of stuff happens. And, and I do think it made people realize that we need to extend some grace and compassion to athletes and that they also need help. And like you said, rest or, you know, whatever resources or mental health day as well. Yeah. One more question about your Paralympic uh, population that you work with. You know, it's, it's interesting looking at the work that I do. We usually see people who, you know, they get injured, um, they have a surgery and they get better or they get at least to a functional level where they can go back doing whatever they want to do after that. Um, but the population that you're talking about that you work so closely with, you know, a lot of them have injuries that either they were born with, so they've, they've learned how to 
to, to figure out their activities on their own. Or, and I'm just guessing, you can correct me if I'm wrong, clearly, there may have been some kind of an injury or incident or something that happened, and now they're adjusting to their new lifestyle. Um, do, you, do, you, do you feel like there's any kind of difference in terms of working with a population that, that you use tip-wise or coping skill-wise to um, continue to push them forward? Because again, I'm just thinking about it from the perspective of, you know, someone who has an actual injury, um, that injury gets better to the point where they're back to how they were before. Right. This population sometimes, they don't get back to how they were before, but they get back to a certain level clearly. And at that level, they can do great things still. So does your language or does your scope of, of, of focus change at all when working this population? And what are some of the, the barriers that you've seen or even some of the great stories you've seen in working with population that's been so amazing? Yeah, thanks for bringing attention to this population, which are athletes with disabilities. Like you said, some of them are congenital that they're born with. And so they've had to adapt their whole life. And then others are as a result of accidents or incidents or illness or injury. Um, and so while they may not get back to where they were pre-injury, um, they adapt. And, and it's actually the, the broader term is called adaptive sports right now. And I love that term. And it's not disabled sport necessarily, but adaptive sports in that it's still sport at a high level uh, for Paralympic level. Anyway, but there's also youth sport levels that are adaptive sports where it's it's still a sport and they're still just like able-bodied athletes, you know, goals and, and all the stuff that we talk about with able-bodied athletes, but they've learned to adapt to whatever their injury is. Now, someone who's gone through an accident, of course, there's also the trauma associated with that. And I always recommend, especially if it's a new um, disability that hopefully they're getting that mental health consult, you know, counseling as well. Um, because I think that's a big part of it. But in terms of performance, I would say that athletes with disabilities and able-bodied athletes are very similar. You know, they're, they're very achievement oriented and they want to perform at their best. And so a lot of the mental skills we do with able-bodied athletes would also be done with athletes with disabilities or Paralympic athletes. Um, I, I think there are some specific stressors to athletes with disabilities that maybe able-bodied athletes don't have to deal with. Um, for example, there's just a lot of devices and equipment that some of the athletes use. And that just takes a lot of extra planning, thinking of like for travel, they might have to travel with their, you know, what they call their day wheelchair as well as a racing wheelchair. Um, but able-bodied athletes too, I think of skiers have to travel with like a ridiculous amount of skis. So it's just different um, stressors. And it's important for me as a consultant who really didn't have much exposure to disability sport before adaptive sports that I learn what those, um, you know, what those stressors are, just what their environment is like and what they have to deal with to help them with the planning and the, the coping with that kind of stuff. Certainly accessibility is an issue. So at competitions, you know, is the bathroom accessible? Is the transportation accessible? What's that like? And, and that can often cause some just extra time needed and extra planning for athletes. So that might be something else that we talk about. I'll give an example. I was a consultant at the um, Parapan Am Games, which was in Toronto in 2015. And 
just like the Olympics and Paralympic games, the, the Pan Am games were first and then the Para Pan Am games were after that. And so they often learn a lot, but when the, the para athletes got to the village and, and with the transportation center, they realized that the buses can only accommodate like a few wheelchairs at a time. And you have to think of the thousands of athletes that are there that are wheelchair users and the line that caused the transportation center that there just weren't enough buses with that could accommodate wheelchairs. And so um, they had to leave a lot of extra time. And then, you know, they did eventually get more buses in um, and change buses, but it's just things like that, that people don't think about and that might throw a wrench in people's mental game. And so, um, you know, just with the planning with athletes, those are some of the things that we might talk about. Um, lastly, just, I, I don't think para-athletes necessarily have the same amount of resources. There's been a big improvement, especially in the United States. You know, just, just adding the P to the USOPC, um, which only happened in the, the past couple of years, is a big step forward. And the U.S. also finally started paying para-athletes the same um, for a medal that Olympic athletes were getting. But, you know, Olympic athletes certainly have gotten a lot more resources than para-athletes, and that's being worked on at the USOPC. But that could also lead to sources of frustration, and, and we try to work on managing what's in their control as well. That's something big I work on with athletes is control the controllables. It sounds cheesy, but um, a lot of times when people are frustrated, this is anyone in life. If you're frustrated, think about what you're frustrated about. And it's usually something you can't change or control. And so that's a lot of that mental energy that's being spent unproductively, I would say. And so you could take a look and say, well, what is in my control in this situation or what can I change or do I just need to accept it and move forward? That could alleviate some of that frustration and help put your mental energy in a more productive place. Yeah, all great tips, Doc. Really appreciate it. And that's basically what Be More Today is about. It's, it's showcasing all these great tips that we can show and share with each other to be more. And that's that's wanted to share. When I was a uh, first year of PT school, our first project was to do um, an ADA compliant uh, um assessment of anything. We had to go anywhere and just see if the building was ADA compliant. Um, and we're checking to see how high the sinks are in bathrooms, if things are wheelchair accessible. Um, and a lot of places were, but some places definitely weren't. And we had to go around and win pairs. So one person had to be in a wheelchair and the other person had to push or just as escort, whatever. And then we switched. And, you know, just for that one day, um, experiencing what someone who has to do that every single day of their lives uh, has to experience. It was tough. It was tough. It was different for me. I'm not saying it was impossible, clearly, but it was very, very different. And it's just interesting that things you don't have to really think about. Like you mentioned the bus. Um, you know, unless you're in a situation where you need access to that, that's not the first thing on your mind. It's kind of like when right, people right. have kids, you know, and you have strollers and you don't know, think about elevators when you have kids. I mean, if you don't have kids, but when you do, it's like the thing you want all every single time. So it's just it's just really cool that we can see these things happening and recognize that, yes, we all need access to certain things, whether you can do it or not, you're not going to really know until you're actually exposed to it. Um, and you have the first or the front row seat being able to see uh, uh, this population grow and the respect this population grow even, you know, to this day. So I salute you for that. And, you know, I, I am a big supporter, clearly, because that's what we do as PTs to help people just to improve their function 
And if we're doing that on our end and you're doing it from the mental aspect, then you know it, it's a great look for the population to continue to get better in the future. So I salute you for all those things. My last question for you, Doc, is very, very simple. You are the 78th person on this show, 78. And the phrase Be More Today has been asked to everybody. Uh, it's been something that we've asked from the beginning and everyone gives a different spin on what Be More Today means to them. So Dr. Jamie Shapiro, when you hear the phrase Be More Today, what does that phrase mean to you? It relates a lot to what I try to do is help people be the best version of themselves for that day. And I think it's going to look different every day. So um, what I would say is help people or for be more today that people understand what are their values? What is important to them? What are some of their purposes that they connect to and find important? What is their why? Or what are their whys? And then once they clarify that for themselves and have awareness of that, that they align their actions and behaviors with those values and purposes. So that's what I think of with Be More Today is that they're aligning actions and behaviors with their values. Um, also for high performers, so some of the, you know, well, not just elite athletes, but athletes, for performers in any arena, business, um, physical therapists, <laughs> professors, teachers, Something called deliberate practice is really important for that be more today. And it's how can you train or practice with a purpose? And it's more of that quality practice versus quantity. Um, however, that could get really exhausting. And so the be more today, I also think sometimes the best version of yourself today is to have a recovery day. Like we've talked about, whether it's a mental health day, uh, I call it intentional recovery, that you're planning to have some recovery activities, and that's going to help you be more today and the next day. Mm. Well said, well said. Any final tips you want to share with listeners, uh, maybe athletes who are listening or people who are trying to get into sports psychology and, and want to follow in your footsteps? I don't know if you need to follow in my footsteps, but... <laughs> um, Follow your passion. You know, I, people give advice, whether it's career advice, athletic advice, life advice, um, do what seems right to you. So I got a lot of advice of what I should do for my academic career and my professional career and lots of questioning of um, what the heck is sports psychology and why would you do that as a career? Um, but follow what seems right to you. And if you're excited and passionate about something, you'll you'll make it work. It may not be a straight, easy path, but it'll eventually work out. So if people are interested in sport exercise and performance psychology, um, two organizations that I'm really involved with and that have a lot of information on their websites are the Association for Applied Sport Psychology and then also the American Psychological Association Division 47, which I was just the president of, also known as the Society for Sport Exercise and Performance Psychology. So, um, you know, part of my goal also is to help further this field, uh, further develop this field of sport exercise and performance psychology and being involved with professional organizations is a great way to do this. Uh, if they want to find out more information about the graduate program that I am a faculty member in and co-director of, they can look up the 
Graduate School of Professional Psychology at the University of Denver, and they'll find information about the Master's in Sport and Performance Psychology program. And then my private practice that I am a part of with several colleagues is called Sport and Performance Excellence Consultants. And the website for that is specsconsultants.com. So it's S-P-E-X consultants.com. So those are just some ways to find out more about sport exercise and performance psychology if you're interested. And before we end, Dr. Thomas, Sean, I feel like for all of our Brown friends, I need to do a few, few. <laughs> Jean? <laughs> yeah, how to do it. That was like our thing in college and I loved it. Uh, I was a big fan of fusion and, and you and um, you were certainly a great performer. I'm sure you can think back and think about the psychological aspect of that as well. So thanks for humoring me there. No, no problem at all. And thanks for being a great guest on this show. You made episode 78 one for the books. I really appreciate it. And again, we haven't really talked since who knows how long, but um, it's like, you know, that's how brown people are. We never leave. So it's, it's great to connect with you. And I'm very excited about the work you're doing. And I'm going to continue to follow you because I, I feel like what we're doing together is, is so related just to get people to, again, push past their, their fears, their inhibitions, uh, the, the, whatever they've been through and just to perform better, to perform better. So thank you so much for all you've done for us. And I appreciate your time. Thanks, Sean. Thanks again for having me. It was awesome talking to you. No problem. Folks, don't forget our quotation from today. It's often the small things that no one sees that bring the big results everyone wants. You heard what she said. Dr. Shapiro was very, very clear, right? You got to put some work into this thing and find those coping skills. Find that time to relax. Find those things that are going to make your performance better. And if you need someone to help coach you through those things, there are definitely resources out there that you can link with. And if you're an athlete and on the field or you're trying to do this thing and apply it to your personal life, uh, it's all the same stuff. No matter how big, how small you are, what your background is, what you've been through, we all have to go through this thing called life. And we all want to do it to the best of our abilities. So let's keep pushing out there. Let's keep putting the small things that we have to go into. Let's continue to do mental checks to make sure that we're actually on the right page. Let's keep pushing for functional goals. And um yeah, let's just continue to be more today. As always, you can visit us on our website, bemoretoday.com for my book. Um, our swag store is open with Be More Today t-shirts and what have you. Our podcast is everywhere on all major podcast platforms, again, in so many countries. So follow us, follow us, follow us. We appreciate it. And subscribe to our YouTube page, Be More Today. If you want to send me a message that you want to give to me or Dr. Shapiro directly, my email is drshawn at bemoretoday.com. As I always say, have a good day. Have a good night. Have a great life. And continue to take your steps to be the best version of you. We'll see you next week. Bye.